Welcome to Reflection as a Service. I'm Paul Merrill. I'm James Jeffers. And we're here to talk today about software engineering and entrepreneurship. James, it is December of 2016. We're recording probably our 31st recording, I believe. Has it been 30 already? It's, it's been 31. It actually is 32 because we have the great Andy Hunt coming up next episode. Right. So we did an interview with him. All of you listeners, what you want to know is Andy Hunt is one of the original signers and creators of the Agile Manifesto. So make sure if you're not going to listen to all of this today, make sure to listen to all of it next time it comes out, because that's going to be a terrific episode. We really enjoyed talking to him. What was your favorite thing about that interview, James? I really liked uh, pinging him on the difference between the promise of Agile and how it kind of didn't pan out and how the Grows Method addresses you know, all of the shortcomings of the way Agile has been implemented. Um, that's the part that I was like, oh yeah, this is the part I want to kind of dig into. Yeah, I think my favorite part, I think I had two favorites. One was his sci-fi novel. Yes. I thought that was pretty cool. And then the second part who what, it was the picture i wanted to know about the picture on the agile manifesto when you go to agilemanifesto.org who is in that picture and where did that picture come from and is it who i think it is and it turns out it was and that was cool so like a little a little actually how long has it been now uh that was what 1990 no i think it was 1999 or i think it was about 2000 or 2001 actually was it really that late yeah yeah, I think the copyright on it is 2001 or 2002. Okay. It's, I, for some reason in my mind, it was much, much earlier. Maybe the 19, like the 1990s is when a lot of those guys like um, Kent Beck and uh, Ron Jeffries were kind of distilling some of these practices into what would become XP. But um, yeah, still, so that's a look back in time, uh, almost uh, 15, 16 years. And it seems like it was just yesterday. I know. And it, and it was so much fun to talk to him. I really had a thrill with that. Um, I think our listeners are going to enjoy it. Are you, our listeners are going to enjoy it. Um, couple of things to talk about before we get going. Number one, make sure to review us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Google play. We're available on all of those. Also, James, I put up a post today because I was talking to a new friend of mine over in the UK um, who I met through Twitter and he said, Hey, you know, I've got your art. I would love to be able to do a British accent right now. But I can't. <laughs> it's as you get the accent through Twitter. <laughs> I could, no, I could just tell that he was British. <laughs> um, no. So anyway, he says, you know, I, I've got your RSS feed, but it was the RSS feed from the website. And I imagine a bunch of people do that. And he had it in Feedly and all of his other podcasts. He gets the link to download the podcast, the actual episode. And with ours, he gets that episode's post from our website. So today I went out to reflectionasaservice.com and I made a new post with the link with the actual RSS feed to just the episodes in it. So listeners, if you don't have that in your podcast catcher, make sure to go grab that. It's out today as, as of, uh, I guess, the 29th of November here. And in 2016, make sure to go grab that. It's There's a post up with just that link. Anything going on for you? What's going on for you, James? 
Well, I've noticed that the sun is beginning to go down at atrociously early hours. It is. Uh, and so I'm starting to wonder, you know, is this the time of year where getting the essential 15 to 20 minutes of direct sunlight exposure is really important for offsetting seasonal affective disorder, uh, the winter blues, cabin fever, whatever you want to call it. You know, just trying to get outside, trying to, you know, expose myself to sunlight, fresh air, and not be stuck in a dark office all day. I think you're exactly right. I feel that way. I got out today for a nice long walk, actually two of them, and it definitely helps a lot. I didn't tell you what happened. So today, listen, listeners, today we're going to talk about commitment, and we're going to talk about commitment within entrepreneurship. But before we do that, I have to tell James this. I haven't told him this yet. The last time I left your house when we were recording this, yes, we were doing an episode with Jared Richardson. Terrific episode. We did two episodes. They were the last two that came up. Uh... 28 and 29, I believe. And I, I have to tell you what happened when I left because I drove out of your, your driveway and my lights shone on a deer, but it was not just any deer. Is it, it the was, albino? It was an albino yep. doe. Yep. An albino doe. Are you, you know about this. Oh, this, that deer has been living in our neighborhood for four or five years now. The craziest thing. Like to see an albino deer with his pink eyes staring back at me. So spooky. <laughs> so spooky. <laughs> Uh, there are two bucks, always... a couple bucks chasing after her too. I saw later. Really? Yeah. Well, the the thing is, we are always worried that some you know some crazy person is going to come in here and try to kill a doe and collect its uh, skin simply because of it. It is an albino. Oh, it's um, got to be some kind of bad luck, though. I yeah. I, I mean, we're just every year we look for her and she's always there. So and she seems to really like this area, partially because my neighbor's two doors down. Every day we'll throw cut fruit and vegetables out onto uh-huh. the uh, the center area. And so the deer come there uh, with the little ones, you know, every summer and spring. So I see. Okay, great. Well, you know, I had never seen one before and I talked to a hunter and they said they had never seen one before. It's apparently very rare. So you've got something very rare in your neighborhood over there. I think we should get going. Let's, let's roll. Let's talk about commitment. So I brought this up. Let me, let me frame this up for you. So, so my thinking was this, that. When I moved from individual contributor at a company into a management role, my level of commitment to the company, to my work, to everything else had to go up. And it felt like a large degree at that point in time. When I moved from working for an employer over to working for my own company, for my own interests and working for my clients, my level of commitment went way up multiple, multiple factors. Um, and it had to. And each year since then, I think it's gone up a little bit as well. And when I work with other people, what I find is there are people who have a sense of this or who get this in one way or the other. And I mean, if you look around at your, if you're an employee and you look around at your office um, and you look at certain people, you can see the level of commitment as you go up the chain in most, in most hierarchies within an organization. Um, sometimes you don't, that's, that's usually a problem, but you can usually see that level of commitment going up. And what I find now is that I work with a number of different people. I work with people on lots of side projects and things like, uh, you know, all kinds of things, whether it's a guest on the podcast, although I'm not talking about any of our guests on the podcast, um, except for in a good way, like the level of commitment from people like Jared Richardson and and Andy, uh, Hunt and, and all these folks. Um, and then you, you work with other people on all these other little projects and you can see right away, are they committed to what they're doing outside of work? 
do they understand that that's an important piece of what they're building in their personal brand and in their career or not? And you can kind of see it right away now. So that's kind of, that's kind of where I came up with this idea of us talking about commitment tonight. Well, that makes sense. And I think when you, when you first mentioned it as a potential topic, um, I was like, okay, like, um, let's, let's look at the definition of commitment. And so I just whipped open the Miriam Webster and wait a said, minute, wait a minute. Did you actually open up a Miriam Webster or did you go to it online? Oh, the online version. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think I even own a paper dictionary anymore. Well, what are you going to do when the zombie apocalypse comes? We got to we got to have some paper left. Well, as Andrew Jackson that. once said, you know, it's a darn fool that can only think of one spelling for a word. So <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I like that. Uh, so two definitions that I see for commitment. One is uh, the act of committing to a charge or trust. Uh, so, for example, you're going to send someone to a mental institution or referring a matter to a committee. I'm going to, you know, commit the thing that way. Um, and that's probably probably from derived some ancient Latin word for bureaucracy. Uh, the second definition is, I think, the one that we're angling on, which is an agreement or a pledge to do something in the future. Um, and then it's interesting, it, the secondary comment says, especially in a an engagement to assume a financial obligation at a future date. Isn't that interesting? It says that right in the definition. Yes. And I always thought of commitment just as like the agreement or the promise to, to do something. I had no idea it actually had a secondary meaning of to assume a financial obligation at a future date. But I guess in some ways that's not too surprising, right? Because for example, uh, if you get married, that's a, a, an ultimate commitment that is recognized by you know uh, your church or the government. And you do sort of assume a financial obligation because you're kind of saying, I'm going to be committed to this person for forever. I'm going to assume their debts. I'm going to make sure that I take care of them in sickness, you know, or in health and so on. So it's, I guess it's not that surprising that it also has a financial aspect. Yeah, I guess. I guess it, that is interesting though. It's also interesting to me that commitment in terms of like committing someone to an insane asylum is a uh, first definition like what was going on when the word was first used for that to be a first definition? Oh, uh, maybe this explains it. So the link to the Latin root is uh, mitimus, which is a warrant of commitment to prison. Oh, that would be why then. Okay. Yeah, and I guess mitimus is from Latin, from mitere, to send. But wow. mitimus is a warrant to send somebody to prison. So... <laughs> I guess there that's why they call it a commitment. Well, I think we should focus on the second definition, though. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so did you have any thoughts about this after I kind of brought it up and framed the conversation, aside from let's make sure we have the right definition? Um, I did. So like you said, once you begin to assume responsibility for your own financial outcomes, and you're in business for yourself. Um, the level of commitment that you have to doing things has to be higher because there really is no one else to pick up the slack. And the, the penalty for not following through on your commitments is, I think ultimately your reputation is degraded and you potentially can go out of business. Uh, so if you're an employee in a company, yeah, you can definitely commit to things. 
but the penalty for not getting those commitments is a lot lower. Uh, I think you have more runway to make mistakes and you can still be employed. Um, and also it's likely that you're working for a company that can absorb the cost of you failing some commitments. I mean, if you keep doing that, I don't think an employer is going to keep you employed. Uh, eventually you'll have that conversation that says, we've been noticing some issues <laughs> and they're going to let you go. But I think, you know, if you're an employee, uh, you are not close to the exchange of money in the same way that you are when you're an entrepreneur. Uh, you kind of have to take on the attitude of the buck stops here. So when you tell a client, yep, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, uh, and it'll be ready on this date, uh, that's, you know, the, the personal cost for not making that is much, much higher than if you're an employee telling an, an external client, yeah, we'll have that ready for you by Thursday. Um, does that make sense? Oh, yeah. And I, I totally relate to that. In fact, one of the things that I read this week was talking about how most businesses are built in order to mitigate risk. Their, their sole purpose for being is mitigating risk. And so there's one or two or several ventures that this company has done and offerings that they have. And the people that are there to support those offerings and to make them work, their whole job is about making sure that it works and eliminating or mitigating the risk around it. So I think, I think that kind of comes back to the commitment aspect. If you've built this organization, if I'm right, if that article is right, uh, assuming it is, then um, you've built in the risk mitigation of one person failing to do their job or failing on a commitment. Yes. And when you said about uh, risk mitigation, I'm, I instantly thought of Beaufort Fairmont. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's we talked we about yes it's like the ultimate in risk mitigation right yeah that's um, what we do yeah uh, but um, and I, I maybe one aspect of this is that I'm, I'm sure that as you've become more aware of commitment and what it means to be committed to doing the things that you said you were going to do uh, or delivering outcomes for people is that when you start working with people that are not entrepreneurs uh, you might notice that yeah, you have this high value on on commitment, but that's not necessarily the same level that everybody else has. And I'm sure you've had situations where you've worked with somebody who, uh, for a, any particular project, you were totally committed to getting it done and doing it, but the other person maybe dropped the ball or didn't take it with as much um, elan or uh, interest. And it kind of makes you feel like, I've invested a lot of time and energy into this and the other party is not reciprocating. Um, I I think that happens with anything. And I think it comes down to kind of what you value. Right. And I I hope I didn't interject too soon there. No, no. but I I think it comes down to where, where your values are. And right now for you and I, our values are in these businesses and we're both running businesses that were bootstrapped. We're both running businesses that uh, for all, uh, for the most part, our sole, owners and and i think i like with us the the buck does stop there and that is a high value for us and it is something we're focused on but it could happen in plenty of other ways and i know that i have experienced it in other ways like you know i talked in a past episode about the fact that i love playing golf and i haven't been playing in the last couple years but there were people that i knew were always going to show up for their tea time and then there were people who i found very quickly uh, they didn't care as much about golf. They didn't really care if they were there 10, 15 minutes beforehand to make sure that we were ready to go. And the starter knew that we were ready to go. We didn't get skipped and whatever. And sometimes something like that, like if you don't, if you're not there for the starter, you don't get to play that day. 
if it's, if the course is busy, you know? Um, and that was, that was something that at the time was so important to me and a strong value that I definitely saw, um, the commitment on my part versus somebody else. But I, like you said, you see it, whether you see, you can see it all over the place. Once, um, once you understand how important it is to be committed to things. And I think that's another thing that you tend to learn by these types of experiences. One of my thoughts about this, um, was, I remember in certain organizations working as a software engineer and salespeople would come back and they would have committed this large piece of functionality to a customer for a certain price. And we would be sitting there trying to come up with estimates or figure out how to do it. And there was no way we were going to hit the date that they committed to. Mm -hmm. We're like, why in the world did you commit to that date? Did you ever experience that? Oh, no, never. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep the conversation going here, James. <laughs> Work with me. <laughs> nope. Never ever had that happen. Uh, yeah, I think if I had a dime for every time that occurred, I would I would be retired at this point. <laughs> right, right. It, it certainly seemed like it happened a lot. And I feel like when I experienced that as a software engineer, that was very annoying. And something that I, I couldn't figure out. And then people would try to push their commitments onto us. It's like, why should I have to fulfill a commitment that you made out of stupidity or naivety or whatever it is or ignorance? Why should I be responsible for that? And I yeah, think I, I, look, I look at it differently now. Okay. What's, what's different now? Well, I wanted to hear your thought. I mean... Uh, you know, I think this has I mean, it's come up before, obviously. And I think the last software developers who work in a group that's like a uh, that's you know divided up by function you'll have the engineers and you have a marketing team and you have a sales team and the sales team will go out and make these ridiculous assumptions or promises like you mentioned um, and I think a couple times I actually asked some of the guys like uh, like why, why did you say that <laughs> why did you offer that and uh, I think it was never malicious um, I think it was the double-edged sword of they really are chasing a sale and they want to be very optimistic about their ability to, you know, look at what's been done in the past. And they will make sometimes some strange assumptions about what's easy and what's not. Um, and I think that was just a matter of experience, you know, with, with those guys. Um, and, but, yeah, I mean, management would come back and say, yeah, the sale is really important. So we're going we're gonna to go ahead and assume the responsibility for that commitment, even though the engineers were saying that's not that's really unfeasible. Um, and I think if you have a commitment that's pushed upon you, you get you become resentful, right? Because yeah. you're like, I didn't agree to this. Uh, especially after you've given counsel that that commitment makes no sense. <laughs> right. Uh, right. <laughs> so, um, so I think, and I think this also came up the other day, we were talking about um, different agile methods and about, uh, something like a scrum where you have phrases they'll say like the the team commits to delivering x uh, in a particular time frame and I think even that uh, is a little bit dangerous because I think one of the big activities that goes on when you're doing software development is you're constantly in a state of learning you're constantly learning about the constraints of the problem the constraints of the software that you've already written and you're discovering new things and so it's kind of odd that you can say, I'm going to commit to produce X in a time box, you know, iteration, for example, 
um, when you know that a lot of stuff is going to be uncovered between now and the end of that iteration. And it's almost like you're setting yourself up for failure because if you have no knowledge of what's going to be discovered, I mean, you could find out something that will completely blow out of the water anything that you've previously committed to. Um, so... So see, I feel completely different about this. And this is what I was going to say when I was talking about now I feel differently about it. Okay, go ahead. Um, and my, my my feeling now is that, that, that you have to commit to things. That in order to build trust between people, you have to make commitments. So, so I had this guy that I worked with um, early on. And we paired up for a long time. And one of the things that he said to me while we were paired programming was I, and I had asked him like, how do you measure people? Because, you know, you get to talking about people and whatever. And he says, well, really my only measure for people is whether they do what they say they'll do. And I thought, wow, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty harsh. <laughs> like, cause, <laughs> cause sometimes you can't do what you say you're going to do. You know, sometimes things just happen, but man, that's pretty harsh. But later on, I started looking at it and thinking about things like with scrum or certain agile methodologies where you have a commitment for the team. I think that it's absolutely key. Um, people, when they commit to something, when they put their name on the line, when they put their tail on the line, they're more willing to do things than otherwise. If you're just a team that maybe maybe we'll try to do this today, good luck making it happen. But when you say, I want to get everybody on board, I want to hear that every person in here is committed. If you're not, perfectly okay, just leave the room. Don't be on this team then you've got everybody on board and everybody ready to go. I just think it drives a lot differently than if you don't. Yeah, I mean, I agree if you get everybody, like you build that kind of consensus and then everyone's ready to go forward. I guess I'm thinking of the scenario where, um, you know, the assumptions that you use to build um, that consensus are completely changed. Um, I think it can be it can be corrosive if you repeatedly don't, take into account that those changes crop up. So if I mean if you consistently push a team to accept a commitment for th for things and they know ahead of time all the stuff's going to change in the last minute and it does and they consistently get, you know, uh, trapped, you know, against that commitment that now they're like, well, we didn't understand what that was going to mean beforehand and that's never adjusted for. I think that can be an issue. Oh, you you mean you mean when we don't adhere to commitments across the board. So like are are you saying like a product owner comes in at the last minute and changes what's being expected during the sprint or something well, changes I mean, during a sprint? It it could be something that has nothing to do with the people. It's just that you you didn't know something about, let's say, a system or a particular constraint and then that becomes revealed in the course of working with it. And you realize this is many times more complicated than we originally thought. And there's no way that it's going to be done in, you know, in the time frame that we thought. So, I mean, if that happens one time, you know, you need to make an adjustment for, okay, did we do a good job of figuring out where the big risks in this plan were? If that's never accounted for, um, I think that can be corrosive. Um, as a, as a, as an entrepreneur, you know, it's it's totally on me, in my opinion, to get better at that part of the business. If you have someone who's on a software team, you know, usually the focus is on skill development, not necessarily on risk discovery and mitigation. But I figure it's it's in it's if I'm the expert, right, and I'm going to commit to a, a client about delivering something. If I misjudge, I in my opinion, since I'm the expert, I'm I have to eat that. 
right? Um, I'm not going to turn around and, and pass that on to my client and say, well, this is actually a lot more work and I need to charge you more money. Uh, or it's going to take, um, you know, multiple times more and basically inconvenience my client. Um, and I think this kind of forces me to be, when I'm giving a commitment, to say, okay, what are all the, the things that I can do to, re- to remove as much risk as possible so that when I do give a commitment for a particular feature, an outcome, or a date, that I stand the best possible chance of actually delivering that. Yeah. That was a mouthful <laughs> on my no, part. I, I think that's, I, there's a lot there. I think, see, I wonder if a certain part of this isn't necessarily about the commitment, but about the reaction to failing to meet a commitment. Um, it could be. Um, like in the instance uh, of an individual working on a scrum team as a yeah. developer, say, They've committed to, you know, features one, two, and three, or, you know, tasks five through 12 during the course of the sprint. They can't meet them all uh, for whatever reason, because there was something that they just didn't understand enough. I think that they made a commitment. I, I really appreciate them making a commitment. It may be that they got as much done as they did because they made a commitment to do it. If they hadn't committed to it, they might not have gotten as much done. In fact, I think in most cases, most people would not get as much done. Um, but then I think it comes back to a healthy team environment and a healthy set of leaders in the environment to understand exactly what happened there and to go back and kind of unpack that. I think that's why you have retrospectives to kind of understand what happened here, what what did we not understand, and how do we adjust for that in the future, which is, it sounds like, a very similar process to what you're going through as a business owner with your clients, because it sounds like you're just trying to learn how to mitigate those risks and how to ensure that your commitment is solid and that you can meet it. And you're iterating over that. In your case, it sounds like it's from one client to the next or from one project with a client to the next. In the case of a scrum team, it might be from one sprint to the next. Is that... Yeah, I think so because the, um, I mean, I could I could use Scrum, you know, internally, and I guess I could could kind of iterate faster on those individual slices of a project, but I think it again it comes down to terms of like uh, personal runway. Um, if I make a really bad decision on a project and I take a bath on it, I mean that can seriously affect my ability to stay in business. Sure. Uh, with a Scrum team. I most of the time I don't think, and I mean this is kind of based on my own experience with it. But you know, if we if we blew um, our commitment for a particular sprint, it wasn't like it was going to bring the company down. Yeah, we could probably blow through a dozen or so, and it wasn't going to bring the company down. I mean, yes, people would be upset because like, hey, you guys said that this feature would be ready. Um, you know, management would get grumpy. Uh, we would get dirty looks from you know the marketing team, whatever. But um, it's not like, I never really felt like, okay, this is going to tank the company. Hmm. Yeah. So it's just on a whole different scale now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with that. I think that's absolutely true. I think there's something else here about the plan of action versus the commitment itself. Um, I mean, I, I forget who it was, but um, you probably will remember as soon as I say it, but there was a general for... I don't know if it was an American general for World War One or World War Two, but they basically said that, you know, you can you can plan as much as you want, but the second the boots hit the ground, that plan is out the window and you've got to deal with whatsoever whatever's happening. And most great strategy books will say, you know, when you've got a plan or a blueprint or a map, 
And then you've got the actual terrain that you're on, trust the terrain. And I think that that's, that's another part of what we're talking about here is I think as entrepreneurs, you're going to have to make a, a commitment. As a business owner, you're going to have to make commitments. You're not going to see everything that could possibly happen ever. You will never get to that point, I, I believe. And instead, we have to, I, I, my kind of the way that I am, am going about it is learning to trust myself to hit that commitment and find a way to hit it, regardless of what the original plan is, and learn how to change the plan to hit it, change the scope, change whatever it is, working together with the clients to make sure that we, we hit that one way or the other. I don't know if that resonates with you or means anything to you uh other than i'm kind of nodding up and down and saying yeah i mean i mean because like i said you know if you if you don't meet those commitments i think it you pay a higher personal cost uh in terms of reputation ability to do to continue doing business um so yeah i mean if if you um once you make those commitments i mean you're kind of like i gotta i gotta meet him right um and you start marching to that and I, I also agree with you about the planning. I, I don't, I don't know who said the for the first one about, you know, the all plans go out the window as soon as you come in contact with the enemy. But it's like Eisenhower was, the, I think he was the one who said that uh, plans are, you know, basically worthless, but planning is indispensable. Ah, nice. So I think like the exercise of planning D Day, for example, um, he knew that. You know they were going to meticulously plan the logistics and organization of you know however number of I think over like a million servicemen trying to get into that small area. Mm. You know he knew that as soon as the bullets started flying, all most of those plans were going to be worthless, right? Because situation was going to change. But the act of going through the planning is what gave everybody the capability to uh, to make on the fly adjustments mm. and, and make real, much better in, informed decisions in the face of all that chaos. So I think, like you said, I think that's essentially true for any project too. I like that. You know, I, I think kind of bringing this back to where we started when I think about working with people who maybe they're employed somewhere and whatever we're working on together is outside of that employment. Um, and I had that situation a lot now. To me, I think one of the things about business ownership is that the extent of this business is much, much greater than nine to five. It's all of those extra activities as well. And they all feed into the same business, whether it's uh, whatever, whatever the activity is. I'm not going to name them because I don't want, um, I just don't want to do that. But, but, you know, you start working with people outside of that. And for them, you know, doing something related to testing or doing something related to automated testing or doing something related to software or, or talking about it or learning about it or whatever it is to many people, that's something that's actually just a work activity. And so when you're asking them to do that outside of work hours, uh, I think that sometimes there's a struggle there and people are less likely to commit to it. Do you see that as well? I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. But, but I do think the people who are most successful in their careers with whatever they're trying to do encounter the same type of things that you and I are encountering with regard to uh, kind of stretching out past that, 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 um, that box of what is work. Yeah. I'm trying to think, is there another, is there another angle to commitment that we should, that we should talk about? I don't know. Have we, have we hit the major points? I think so. 
is there a contrarian aspect to commitment that that we have not looked at or considered or brought up? I think there might be. So that's a really interesting question. And it, so there are certain people who I believe that either because of environment or personality or something are almost incapable of commitment. Do you think that's true? Oh, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, I do think that's true. Um, and I kind of think that that kind of breaks into like, as crazy as it sounds, um, like, um, I think it, I think it kind of comes down to the environment that they were raised. Yeah, especially the uh, reproductive strategies of the envi- of the society or culture that they're in. What? Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> what? I think. Okay. If, okay. I, I, no, no, this, I missed something big. I missed something big. Help me out. So, so in the the uh, animal kingdom, there's kind of like two different reproductive strategies that you see animals generally take. Uh, and this has kind of been um, uh, dubbed R and K. Uh, the R uh, reproductive strategy is like rabbits. Rabbits essentially live in an environment where f- the food supplies are unlimited. Uh, and the, the entire goal behind a rabbit is to make as many children as possible and not spend any time at all raising the children. Like as soon as, as, soon as they pop out, it's like, okay, eat more grass, make more rabbits. Uh, on the other side, there's the K reproductive strategy, and this is what you see in a lot of mammals, uh, like wolves and uh, elephants and people. And that is, um, the strategy is to have relatively fewer children, but invest a lot more time into those children. And so, I think there are some environments where, um, if you don't see a lot of stability, stability in the people around you, I think that commitments become a lot less meaningful. Because the object in life is to um, essentially grab as many resources as you can, consume as quickly as possible, and you know move on. Whereas if you're going into a society or culture that's relatively stable um, and commitment is honored and is expected, then I think people will take it a lot more seriously. Um, so that's kind of what I mean by that. So let me make sure I follow. So if you're if we're in an R environment, yes, then. It's less stable because you're one of 20 rabbits that were just born. <laughs> Essentially. And you see 19 of them all eaten by like hawks and lions and tigers and bears and things. And you're looking around and you're like, yeah, I don't care about this higher order thinking and commitment or, or whatever. I just want to find a really nice burrow and a lot of grass and a mate and move on. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think you, you can see... Uh, in some aspects of um, human societies, some are more uh, K-influenced or some are more R-influenced. And I think even within our own society in the United States, there are certain people that grow up in a more R-selected environment versus a K-selected environment. And the K-selected environment are people that are like, you know, marriage, uh, traditional values, um, you know, uh, raising children uh, with a lot of time and investment, uh, are, you know, are, are paramount uh, to to those people. Whereas in our selected environment, it's really more promiscuous. Uh, And I think that can be kind of generalized to how people approach different commitments. I mean, if you've never grew up with commitments being important, um, are you going to be likely to keep them? I maybe by accident, I don't think you're going to spend a lot of effort making sure that they are being kept. So just tying this together, you're saying that and someone who grew up in an R-type environment is going to be less likely to keep a commitment than someone who grew up in a K-type environment? Yeah, that's my theory. Uh, now, I, that's 
that's not a proof, <laughs> you know, so take that with a grain of salt, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the way I think about it. Uh, are there exceptions? Yeah, I'm sure there are. I'm sure you can find people that grow up in a K environment who are just not like that. And people you can find it in our environment who are really into commitment and long-term thinking and, you know, all the rest that go along with a K, uh, a reproductive mm. strategy environment. But I think on average, I think that that does hold up some. Hey, and if you disagree with this, please let us know. Write in and say, hey, yeah, write to I James. Disagree. <laughs> James at James, yeah, JD Jeffers on Twitter. Um, so, like I said, that's not a proof. And, um, you know, if someone had a, a more definitive way of determining who keeps commitments or not, I'm definitely be interested in reading about that. Yeah, that would so. be interesting. I bet there's some really good psychology and sociology papers out there about this. Yes, probably. And not just the just not the ravings of James on a podcast. <laughs> well, that is very interesting. Now you brought this back to environmental factors, suggesting that a K environment or R environment has an effect on com- level of commitment of a person or their ability to make a commitment. I wonder if there is also something um, built into us about that. Oh, you mean like uh, like. Uh, um... Like, like is it in, environment versus uh, nurture versus nature? Oh, I, I have to think that nurture has a lot to do with it as well. Well, I mean, you were just saying, I think you just argued for nurture, didn't you? Well, I think some of that is like expressed in like a gene set. Um, and yeah, I, I could see what you, yes, I can see how you would say that's nurture versus nature. And that seems like the more nurture. Um, but I do think that there are um, definitely some aspects of behavior that come through in the genes. Um, and you know, maybe the smidgen of that is, is innate to, you know, something that's outside of uh, nurture. I don't know. Um, again, if, if someone has data on this, I'd, I think that'd be fascinating. Yeah, it really would. It really would. Well, I guess, you know, as far as, as far as me for, I think we, we have pro- pretty much hit on everything here now. <laughs> enough, I, I, I think, I think for me, the, the only thing that I would want to leave a listener with is to say how much, um, how much good has how much good i've seen and felt from commitments i think for a long time me personally i was scared of commitment i think that i was scared of the accountability that came along with the commitment and the responsibility that came along with it um i although i've never really been one to shy away from responsibility maybe it was more the accountability part of it but i know now like looking at things so much good can come from that. And in fact, I believe, and, and once again, James and I are works in progress. Neither one of us is like this successful multi-billionaire or anything um, in terms of financial success or whatever and business success. But, but I, know, I, know, I know for me that the best things in my life have come from commitment. And I really believe that the only way to success is by having being accountable to yourself and being accountable to others. And I really believe that can only come through commitment in the first place. Maybe, and I'd love to hear your thoughts as we kind of close this out here, James. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's something that I've certainly struggled with as an entrepreneur is um, overcoming the fear of, like I said, committing because you are kind of, in a, in a sense, putting it on the line, there is no other person that's going to take the fall if things go poorly. Yeah. Um, and so that, you know, having spent most of my life working for somebody else, that was kind of terrifying. Um, and it is kind of interesting to see that the more that I've embraced kind of 
going further and further afield, you know, as being an entrepreneur, like I feel like I'm getting better and better at it. I don't necessarily think I'm good at it yet. Um, but, um, like how much, how much is commitment a part of, okay, like in order to sell a client on a particular proposal, I'm essentially telling them you're going to pay me X amount of dollars for this particular outcome. And that is, in a sense, a term of commitment because you're saying, I promise, I promise that after you pay this money and I spend some time doing this thing, you're going to get this outcome that's going to, it's going to make you more money. Um, and I think, <laughs> like, if you, if you just said, um, I'm going to work on it for a while and you'll just pay me while I'm working on it, that's different. And I don't think the, the commitment is nearly the same. Um, so, yeah, having to, to provide that to people and making the commitment to deliver that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I think I would agree. I think I'm seeing positive outcomes for myself and for my family because I'm willing to do that. Awesome. Cool. Well, you've been listening to Reflection as a Service. We're sponsored by Beaufort Fairmont Automated Testing Services. That's my company. We work with teams in agile environments to sync up testing and development. We also work to accelerate automated testing in places where you want it accelerated. Find us on the web, BeauftFairmont.com. Look, we love doing this. We want to hear from you. Reach out to me, D. Paul Merrill on Twitter or James J.D. Jeffers on Twitter. Uh, my email address, Paul at BeauftFairmont.com, but don't send me a bunch of spam. Um, <laughs> you can also get a hold of us through RAAS at BeauftFairmont.com. James, do you want to share any other contact information? Uh, you can reach me at JamesJ at CodeProvidence.com. Cool. Well, thanks so much for being here. We love hearing from you. We hope you've enjoyed this show. Make sure to tune in next time when we have Andy Hunt, one of the original signet signers of the Agile Manifesto. He talks with us about all the nitty gritty details. Who was the hardest to deal with in the, in the whole thing? Like who was, was the one who just wouldn't go along with stuff? What were the arguments? We got into all of it. So make sure to tune in next time. Thank you so much. And we will see you next time. 